bringing the light of Jesus Christ into a sin-darkened world. This is the Lighthouse Radio Bible Study. Hello, my name is Ben Fordham, and I invite you to join us now as we study God's Word together. Welcome to the Lighthouse Radio Bible Study. I greet you all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and thank you for tuning in. As we look to the Word of God today, I would like to draw your attention again to the book of Isaiah. and We will look at chapter 14, verses 5 through 23. This text is an extended proverb or parable against Babylon. This particular passage of Scripture is a reminder to us of a couple of important lessons that we must learn about Scripture itself. First, context matters. One has said, a text without a context is likely a pretext. This rings true. We can be aggressive in our efforts to prove our positions from Scripture, and in doing so, maybe rip a phrase or a verse completely out of its context to supply us with a proof of what we believe. This does not always, but sometimes can lead to that dreaded form of interpreting Scripture that theologians call eisegesis. Eisegesis is a $10 theological term that means an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, biases, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text. Put simply, this means we come to the text and use our own belief or understanding to frame what the text says or means. What did the Apostle Peter tell us? No scripture is of private interpretation, meaning eisegesis is bad. We instead perform exegesis, which is that form of explaining a text or interpreting it, not based on our own beliefs or biases, but comparing Scripture with Scripture, and using the Scripture to interpret itself. This is the practice that we should have. We should not come to Scripture to try to change Scripture to what we understand or believe. Rather, we should come to the Scripture allowing it and expecting it to change us. We understand what the context is, understand and understand what is said by the context, and then apply to our lives. Second, we learn that the Bible has different forms of literature. There is prose, poetry, proverb, parabolic uh, literature, and even ap- apocalyptic literature or, po- or apocalyptic uh, genre of, of uh, lesson or genre of prose. When someone asks us to, make, uh, to take the Bible literally, we must remember that we do so but do it by the literature that it's being used. The Bible is literal, where literal uh, is, uh, is applies, applies, and figurative where figurative applies. We uh, should not be beguiled into thinking that the only type of literature the Bible uses is strict and straight prose that can be interpreted strictly literally, as though literal means factual. With those points brought to bear, we now hear a parable against Babylon. 
that follows the promise of mercy from the, verse, from the first four verses of the chapter. Judgment was pronounced on Babylon in chapter 13. And now we see an extended proverb or parable regarding that judgment. This is not the remnant rejoicing in a bad way, uh, say Proverbs 24, 17 style, where we're told not to rejoice when thine enemy falleth, and let not our heart be glad when he stumbleth. Uh, the Lord may see that, we're told in verse 18, and it would displease him, and he might turn away his wrath from the one he is uh, executing the wrath upon. So this is not that. This, instead, is the remnant of Israel, and indeed, <clears throat> all nations round about, rejoicing over the mercy they've received, and exulting in the justice of God. Their masters in Babylon had been cruel, and God would render judgment in kind to them. Babylon and her king thought themselves to be superior, superior to other nations, superior to uh, other kings, and their gods they thought to be superior to all other gods. They refused to give the glory to God for any of their victories. They blasphemed and boasted, for this God, and this God would destroy them branch and root and, uh, as they say, give them the boot. Here we learn a lesson as well, and that is the inverse of Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31 tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? We can reverse that, and the same thing is true. If God be against us, who can be for us? What may we learn from these things? Let us look to the text. Isaiah chapter 14, and we begin in verse 5. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked, and the scepter of the rulers. God would use the Babylonians, also called Chaldeans in the scriptures, as his staff or rod of chastening against Israel. We have seen this uh, done with the Assyrians as well, but in particular against Judah and against Jerusalem, Babylon was brought, uh, and now we have a prophetic proverb that shows a point in time where that staff and scepter being used by the Lord to judge or chasten his people is going to be broken. Their commission and their rule are going to be done away with. Verse 6 reads, He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled nations in anger, is persecuted and none hindereth. The army of Babylon was at one point unstoppable. The empire uh, took over other nations quite violently. They are, were very swift and, and very aggressive in their attacks on other nations and their taking of uh, other nations. They piled up, uh, piled up heaps of dirt to climb the walls of Jerusalem, to take Jerusalem and destroy it. And they were very, very cruel and powerful. That same empire is now going to be taken by violence. And there will be none that will stand in the way or slow down their conquerors. The Medes and the Persians will not be hindered. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. All these nations, who had been conquered and oppressed by Babylon, enslaved by them, would now find peace in Babylon's fall and rejoice over their freedom, but also over the fall of the, their oppressors. Again, this is not that uh, wicked rejoicing, but that good rejoicing that God has done something just and right. Verse 8, 
Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us. This is, again, where we find we're not talking about literal trees. Fir trees aren't singing and rejoicing. Cedars of Lebanon aren't talking and saying, Since you're laid down, no feller has come up against us. But this is understood as we understood the trees in Isaiah chapter 10 and verses 33 and 34. This speaks of men, and particularly princes and rulers of the nations that were under Babylon. After the fall of Babylon, there is no, quote, feller or lumberjack coming to cut them down. I know, I know. You thought feller was just the southern slang way of saying fellow. Well, it might fit, but we could maybe usely, loosely use it that way. But what is being depicted here is one who would, quote, fell a tree. That is to cut down a tree. Sorry, guys. That's just the way it is. Verse 9. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. The image here is that, that of hell as the grave. The word hell is often used to describe the grave or uh, something like that, not, uh, not necessarily always the location, so to speak. The grave is opening up, and it's going to meet the king of Babylon. You picture here a, a pit is dug and the king of Babylon will fall into it. All the kings of the kingdoms that had been, the chief ones and their thrones, are stirred up to meet him. That is, all the ones he had conquered and killed are going to meet him in the same place. And they have all gone to the grave and he is going to the grave. And this, this is describing one who held himself in such high regard as to be God himself. It turns out, though, that he is no better than any of those already in the grave. Verse 10. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? This is not, again, the dead literally talking, but this is a poetical way of saying that Babylon's king is ultimately no greater than the men he conquered. He is not strong enough to defeat death, but will go to the grave as they did, and with quite likely with less pomp and circumstance than they did. Lest pride take us, we should all remember that we, one day too, will go to the grave. Verse 11, Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. The king of Babylon will be laid in the grave, and all the splendor and magnificence and pomp and circumstance that was his in life are going to be buried with him, and he is going to be food for the worms in the ground as all those that went before him in the ground as the worms are. How low is this man brought? Here we come upon a verse that can confuse you. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? We must ask ourselves, who is Lucifer here? Many take that to be the name of Satan or the devil, but we have nothing in the context that points us to that. And it would be strange for us to travel all this way through the verses we've already come through and finish in the verses all the way through verse 23 with, uh, with no change in context but a, a swift leaving of context for one or two verses. 
This is not the way that Scripture works, nor this parable. This is, in context, the king of Babylon, or Babylon itself as a nation. By the context, you would never understand Lucifer here to be the devil. Why do we leap to this uh, conclusion that this is the name of Satan? The language is familiar. We say, fallen from heaven. But again, remember, this is parabolic. This is a parable. This is a proverb spoken against Babylon. That language is hyperbolic. It's even apocalyptic. We have heard before, and you'll hear again, throughout Isaiah, among all the prophets, and even in Judges and a couple of other places in Scripture, that the stars fall, or the sun gives no more light, or the mountains melt. These aren't talking about literal events. These aren't talking about, these are talking about the fall of powers, or rulers, or kings, and so on. And so this alone is no indicator. Son of the morning, perhaps we think of that, uh, that phrase as being used uh, in reference to uh, Satan, and so we call him Lucifer because he was the highest of all the angels, allegedly, and wanted to be uh, in the position of Christ, wanted to be in the position of God. This language, son of the morning, this, this phrase is actually used uh, describing Christ in the New Testament. The, the word day star or star of the morning uh, is, is a similar kind of phrase, and that's used in 2 Peter 1.19, Revelation 2.28, and Revelation 22.16, where Christ is called the day star or star of the morning. We would never draw the conclusion that Lucifer is linked to Christ as a name. This is one, though, who thinks of himself as worthy of the name Son of the Morning, as worthy of this bright, shining morning star, one who shone so brightly and now is fallen. And how great is the fall of his kingdom and his kingship. From one of being one of the wonders of the world in Babylon, and Babylon itself was one of the ancient wonders of the world, the city. The greatest splendor of all the kingdoms of earth that mentioned in Daniel is now dead and in the grave. No, Satan is not in view here, for he would not be fed upon by worms. One like Satan is here, though, lifted up in pride, desiring to be God. But then, that is application and not the text itself. And after all, who would we not describe as Lucifer in the context? Well, our own government sometimes can overreach and act like they are God. We can overreach and act like we are God. You and I would not call ourselves Lucifer as, as reference to Satan, but we might be called Lucifer in, in that sense that we uh, want to be God ourselves. We want to usurp the authority that God has. And ultimately, that's what this is pointing to, is one who was a bright star and has now fallen. Verse 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt thy throne, my throne, above the stars of God. I will, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Daniel chapter 4, verses 30, verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And he was brought low. He was made to behave like a beast for a while. Remember Belshazzar, in the very night Babylon would fall, would be slain, and he was to told by God in Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, 
Thou hast lifted thyself up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. Thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. The king of Babylon thought to be God, and was shown that he was not God. He would sit on the mount in the sides of the north, the place from which Babylon would come and conquer, and be enthroned in the stead of God. That was his desire, that was what he thought he was, and that was who he wanted to be. But ultimately the Lord uh, showed him different. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High, verse 14. The night of his death, Belshazzar was hosting a feast and premeditatively chose to blaspheme by mocking God through the use of the vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 5, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And as this blasphemy was committed, the hand began to write on the wall. Verse 15, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Brought to the grave, the Lord would end the life of the king of Babylon. 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Chief ones of the earth and the kings of the nations from verse 9 would see this, figuratively, and their testimony would be mockingly that this man shook the kingdoms and was indeed no better than they. Verse 17 that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. This is the Babylon that laid waste to nations and cities, and was cruel in captivity. All the kings of the nations, verse 18, even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house. This king of Babylon would not receive a stately funeral, or a beautiful casket, but would be slain without any thought for his high position or power, no pomp in this grave. Verse 19, but thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with the sword that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden underfoot, under feet. No solemnity, no dignity in death for this king. He would be cast to the ground and trodden underfoot like a branch cut off of a tree. There would be no dignified death and no dignified burial. Verse 20. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evil doers shall never be renowned. These kings and their descendants would never be honored and adored, but rather remembered only for their cruelty and humiliation. Prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers, as, uh, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. The sins of the fathers, these kings of Babylon, are visited upon their children, such that they never recover the power and rule they once had, but are laid low, very low. For I will rise against them, verse 22, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name, the re and remnant, and son, and nephew, saith the Lord. Like Alexander the Great, no ruler will descend from Belshazzar, but his posterity is cut off. Verse 23, I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. 
Basim or Besom is the a broom. This is a picture literally of, uh, or, or figuratively, <laughs> of uh, the great king and his kingdom and Babylon itself, the ancient wonder of the world, being swept away into the uh, dustbin of history. This is what they will be from here on, a warning and a byword to all who would witness and remember. Now let's look at some lessons for us. All the glory goes to God. This parable is a glorious reminder of the destructive effects of pride and greedy ambition. The kings of Babylon, particularly Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, desired to be God and to get all the glory, honor, and praise due to him for themselves. Their fall was great. Ultimately, we should understand that this desire is part of the fall of Adam. This is where the devil, Satan, that old serpent, does, in fact, enter our lesson. The temptation to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as was that if they did, they would be like God. Adam fell to pride. The word of God was twisted by Satan and used to minimize the consequences and tempt with the maximum benefit. Sounds like Satan was the original marketing guru. This product will do all you need it to and have no bad side effects. Zero calories and all the flavor. The way to defeat this temptation to pride that now dwells in us is twofold. First, we must learn to be content with such things as we have. Remember that everything we have is a gift from God. God, by his providence, has given us all that we have and all that we are, including our own lives. There is nothing of this that we could have without him, and we should be content with the gifts, but also content with the giver. Indeed, more than content with God, we should be glorifying him in every way we can. This is not to say that ambition is entirely bad, but it must pass the test of holy ambition. Why do we have the desires that we do? Have we hitched our desires to the glory of God? This is the second part of defeating pride. All the glory for everything we accomplish in life goes to our Father, for by Him were all these things truly done. Remember the psalm that says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it? All things are for the glory of God. Many of your older catechisms will say this directly. The Westminster reads, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When we tether our ambition to the glory of God in this way, we will find the greatest satisfaction and joy and will not have uh, the, to fear the fall of pride. This is easier said than done. So prayerfully consider, lest you fall into temptation, and lust for glory to be yours and not his. Beware results. Victory and blessing are not necessarily indicative of God's being pleased with us. We must prayerfully consider that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar thought they and their gods were the greatest. After all, they ruled the whole known world and had defeated all challengers until the Medes and the Persians came along. God, it seems, always has someone else waiting to take you down. Consider well 
that many have been granted victory, in order that God may make an example of them in judgment. God is holy, and God is jealous. His jealousy is a holy jealousy, and what is he jealous for? His glory. The Lord had a purpose for Babylon, and they did not give him glory for it. Again, we see the results, and we are tempted to think that God is like us. So, with our ambition, we go after things, and we do things, and uh, we feel like the end justifies the means. And that, while we may not have done it in a way that is pleasing to God, we think, surely, he's going to look at the results and bless them. For our great goodness and ability have given him these great things. God is not pleased with this, and God is absolutely not like us when it comes to this way of thinking. Psalm 50 verse 21 reminds us, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. So we must be careful with our ambitions. We must be careful to give God all the glory, and we must beware uh, when we think about results. There's just a side note that we need to pay attention to here, and that is uh, that, indeed, all the governments of men overstep their bounds at some point. They decide that it is they who are God and they who get to decide. But indeed, that is not true. And we need to be in much prayer about the state of our nation because it seems that our government has started to do exactly that. This doesn't mean that God will uh, punish us. Uh, doesn't mean that God will do uh, what he did to, uh, to Israel, to America. But we do need to understand and speak out against these things when there is great overreach and uh, the government tries to usur usurp the authority and power of God and claim it to be their own. What are we to do? Well, let us become a proverb, but maybe not this kind of proverb. We don't want to be the bad example. We want to be the good one. We don't want to be used as an example for others where not to go, but an example of, to others as to what we should do. So what shall we do? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? These are the requirements to become a good proverb unto God. So, let us become a proverb that fulfills these requirements. Let us prayerfully consider uh, what we need to do to be content and to do away with pride. And let our ambition be holy ambition. Ambition not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. And being granted victory, let us give God all the glory. And as we do all these things, let us look to his word and pray that he will give us more light. Bringing the light of Jesus Christ into a sin-darkened world. This is the Lighthouse Radio Bible Study. The Primitive Baptists who bring you this program each week do so with the following conviction. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is our guide for what we are to believe, and it is our guide for what we are to do. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and He is to be followed as Lord and Savior. And we believe that His salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign grace, 
not dependent on any work that we do, but wholly dependent on His finished work done on our behalf. We present this weekly Bible study based on the premise of Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. If you would like to contribute to the furtherance of this program, then please send your donation to this address, The Lighthouse P.O. Box 1317, Baxley, Georgia 31515. Again, that is The Lighthouse P.O. Box 1317, Baxley, Georgia 31515. Or if you would like to send a question or comment to us, you can also send your correspondence to that address. We also have a website where you can access our programs and other helpful information. It can be found at www.lighthousebiblestudy.org. That's all one word and with all lowercase letters. Again, that's www.lighthousebiblestudy.org. Until next week, this is your speaker, Ben Fordham, praying that God will light your world.